If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Health Care for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. It's with a heavy heart that I bring to you the news of the passing of Al Levin, a guest of the show last season, a childhood friend of a good friend of mine, a compassionate soul, assistant principal, father of four, loving spouse, brother, son, and just a really good guy who I was myself looking forward to getting to know better. He lost his battle with depression two weeks ago, and it's taken me a bit to bring myself to deliver this to you all. It's a hard one to process for so many reasons, personally because we were close in age and had so many things in common. He was also a podcast host of The Depression Files, where he provided incredible resource over the past six years, exploring ways to manage and even recover from depression, an illness that for those of us who struggle with it, rules an unacceptable amount of time and mental energy in a person's life. And I was under the impression that Al had a handle on it finally after two very difficult bouts over a de- decade ago, which he shared with me in this recording that I'm resharing with you right now. And in listening back, I can hear some of the struggles he was having with care providers. And as a care provider, it's hard to rehear some of this. It's so easy to become disheartened by witnessing someone who was trying so hard to lose the battle with the disease that he advocated so hard for resourcing so many people in the process. At a gathering with friends and family just a couple weeks ago, I met a guy who told me that a friend of his who served on the board with Al set him up with a call with Al when he said he was close to taking his own life and saved his life. I got a big response the last time I posted this, um, which was originally released in 2022. And I'm guessing it was because I don't think there's anyone who doesn't know someone who's been affected by this disease, whether it's been identified, gone untreated, or fought silently. But I'm choosing to focus today on what I learned from Al, from his bravery, from his integrity, and from the fact that he persevered as long as he did. For all his effort to bless us with what he was able to share during this time, and grateful to have had the chance that we did have together, the conversations that we had, and the people he introduced me to, who are amazing folks. You'll be missed, Al Levin. Here's our conversation. So the, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you was because I feel like, you you know, you, you've become like an ambassador for men's depression. And, and you know, in, in some ways, it's funny, we were introduced through a, a common friend, but then it turned out that, you know, the Face It Foundation, uh, Bill and Mark were, were people who were also supporting you early on when you were struggling. So it was such a great like lead in, but I, but you've, I feel like, you know, 
with with your work now because you've gotten so involved and you've you've you know you've been talking to so many different people s- similar to what I feel like I go through with my podcast I learned so much from having these conversations and in some ways I came into this with a health challenge into my field with a health challenge as well and so I'm always exploring and I'm always kind of you know I because I treat people who have you know so many different varieties of things I I, I feel like I'm trying to help them with resource at the same time but right. it seems like this that's exactly what you've gotten into with with your podcast yeah absolutely and uh i always say selfishly like i have learned so much you know i started the podcast is called the depression files i remember almost right away reaching out to somebody out who i knew online and said hey i know you live with bipolar disorder so i don't think i'm going to interview you but i know you have a podcast you know let's just talk about podcasting And actually, after about my third or fourth episode, I realized, wow, these guys have have everything. Like, why Mm. would I limit this to just men with depression? So I started just even marketing it as interviews with uh, men who have lived with depression and or other mental illnesses. And, you know, I got to learn so much about so many different mental illnesses. That was incredible. so I, that's that's the piece I love the most. And actually, in the past couple of years, I've expanded it to now what I call include deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics of mental yeah, illness. Yeah. And that's just given me the freedom to really interview just a wide variety of people. Um, some of what I love uh, is interviewing researchers around new research around depression and other mental illnesses. Yeah. So I research, you know, I uh, interviewed a researcher from Johns Hopkins on psychedelics and depression, which was really fascinating yeah. to me. I've covered um, it a little I, bit too. Yeah. Yeah, a, a researcher out of Stanford who took TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and because that is typically a a therapy that you have to go to for about 20 minutes, 30 days straight. And it's so time consuming. He's created what is called accelerated TMS. So it's more pulses going through your brain of the magnetic stimulation and you can, it's less treatments. Um, But so as well as interviews with women who have had different experiences, you know, a woman who uh, unfortunately lost her son to suicide. And now Mm. she is out advocating really kind of against the websites that share, uh, almost promote suicide in ways. And she'll uh, even put in search, uh, she's really good with the SROs, so she'll have certain words that will trigger her uh, website and it will say things like, I know you came here because you were thinking about suicide and this is what I need you to know. And she'll promote ways of hope and, and and ways to recover rather than pursue, uh, you know, dying by suicide. Yeah. And, and this is not your full-time job, which I think people need to understand, which is you, you are, you are assistant principal at elementary school, correct? And you've worked in education for what, 20 some years, right? Yep. Over 20 years in education. I've been an administrator for, uh, about 15 or 16 years. So yeah, it is not my full-time job. And, and I always try to remind myself of that. You know, I remember <laughs> listening to some podcasts around podcasting and uh, somebody put a reminder out there, like a podcast coach, like, don't forget, you know, 
you're competing against people who have teams who put these things together, exactly. right? And exactly. keep in mind and don't beat yourself up if your podcast is not as brilliant as, you know, the NPR podcasts, right. for example. Right. right. And then he played a little trailer from a podcast and it just went through all of the titles, you know, our main producer, our yeah. assistant producer, our sound person, our, you know. So yeah, uh, it's a lot, right? I, I have a family with four kids. I want to be as present in their lives. I have a full-time job that, uh, you know, a lot of times is more than a 40 hour week it's always more than a 40 hour week and sometimes it's it's bringing work home um and i love the podcasting yeah it's it's seeking out people you know it is time consuming right yeah. it's seeking out guests it's um scheduling with guys it's then interviewing oh, yeah. <laughs> it's then editing it's then publishing so so it can be a lot but you know thankfully it's something that i just love yeah, um, yeah. and it, it really feeds me yeah. And, and the, the other part of this that, that, you know, you go into this with a lot of things with your guests and with your blog that, you know, the, the, there's the recovery process takes engagement. I mean, for, for a period of time, it takes a lot of engagement. I mean, I, I came into this field, into my, into my health field through a back problem. And, you know, even, even looking back, I can, you know, I can, and, and I was reading some of your, some of your blog posts and stuff. And I'm, sort of going back through this and realizing, you know, some of my back pain, because I had really kind of started in my, in my teen years, but peaked in about my mid twenties there, you know, how much of that was, you know, because, because what ends up happening with mental health stuff and, and mental and emotional health things becomes physiological at a point. I, I, you know, as I go back sometimes through some of the, some of the, you know, pieces that I had to go through for recovery, I'm realizing more and more just how much of it was, kind of mental and emotional and, and the manifestations of, of what that ended up being physiologically for me. Not that I don't have some, I, you know, I have a, a foot issue that I think has been, you know, problematic and a, and a lower spinal issue, but I've basically been pain-free for, you know, over 15 years, probably almost getting close to 20 years. So that, that, that tells me that there's more than just a physiological, you know, issue going on here. And I treat a lot of, you know, pain issues and, and it's, it, you know, it's so, it's so complicated in that way. So, you know, I, I think one, one place I'd, I'd like to start with you is, I know, I'm sure you've been through this a lot, but I, because you're, you're so good at sharing what your story was. And, and, and one of the things that I think is important for, especially for men, I feel like women will talk to other women about these, these challenges sometimes, but men don't. And so they, they sort of suffer in silence for a long period of time. Your, your, your story starts somewhere around like 2010, right? When, when, yep. I mean, in, anything, anything prior to that in your life that was, that, that you recognize as, as an episode, a depressive episode? No, really, really nothing at all. And that first episode, you know, it made sense looking back on it. Uh, I was a brand new principal. I had been promoted from an assistant principal. I was moved to a different school within our district. I didn't know anybody. There was no administrative team. So everything was on me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had probably what are typical challenges for principals, but it was a lot for a first year. You know, I came into a school with a budget that was, you know, in a deficit and I had to cut people before I even met them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, we had uh, our enrollment was like over the top, tons of kids signing up and the 
the the district wasn't stopping them. So we had huge classes before yeah. the school year started and I was hearing from teachers. And so it was a lot of stress. And then at home, I had a five-year-old, a three-year-old and two newborns. And so, you know, <laughs> Twins, I was right? don't, on, you have, don't you have yeah, the last exactly. ones? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, up and out of the house before anybody's awake. And I would get home after dinner and uh, nine times out of 10 after bedtime too. And I, I never saw the family. So, yeah. But but that first year, yeah, I started experiencing depression, and I don't know if I was even able to put a finger on it at first. Right. I told my brother some of what was going on, and okay. he's a family doctor living yeah. in England, but he was a huge support of mine, and uh, and all of a sudden I found myself in a doctor's office, you know, four foot by four foot little office, and. This wasn't a common symptom of mine, but I was definitely like fidgety and I was pacing in the tiny little office mm. and I couldn't sit down. Yeah. And the doctor who knew me walked in and he, he looked at me and was like, whoa, Al, what's going on? And I shared with him what was going on. And he was like, yeah, this is depression. Let's start you on some medication. Let's yeah. get you a therapist. Um, and I was able to, to work through that depression with a therapist, with medication, um, had you had, you had you know, any experience with therapists before that? No, I hadn't. And my the first experience was not the best. And I yeah. think my family doctor probably knew it wasn't going to be the best fit, okay. but it was the only one he had to refer me to. Yeah, but yeah. he kind of insinuated that it may not work. And, you know, I, I always tell people um, I really strongly believe in therapy. Yeah. And it's really important to click with yeah, your therapist. Absolutely. And if you don't, you know, I always, especially when dealing with depression, I think it's good to give them a shot for two or three sessions. Yeah. Um, and and then, you know, if you're not clicking at that point, find a different therapist. Yeah. Don't give up on therapy, yeah. but find a different therapist yeah, because it is guy. well, yeah, and it is well worth shopping around, which can be a real pain yeah. and a hassle to go through your story again and tell yeah. them everything again. Yeah. But in the end, if you meet somebody that you click with and you can trust and share openly, it's huge. Yeah. It's huge. So, um, yeah, so, I, you know, I managed that depression and it, it got pretty bad, but I was able to not take time off of work other than a couple of therapy appointments and, uh, you know, taking the medicines. What, what, was, what was your experience with the, with the medicine? Well, it's interesting. Uh, my brother was, again, advocating for me as a family doctor. I went in, so my family doctor started me on a typical antidepressant that most family doctors start yeah. patients on. Family doctors, I think, are like, to, uh, I believe they prescribe, prescribe like 80% of the antidepressants come from a family doctor. Oh, that, that first right? visit with a family doctor. I could be off there. Don't okay. quote that one. Okay. But, um, but a high amount, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so they have their typical go-tos. And, you know, my brother knew I was a principal in a building. I didn't want to miss work. I was really stressed out. And I also was a bit in fear of, I have to wait four to six weeks to see if this thing even works, yeah, yeah. right? So my brother uh, was really advocating for me and he showed me a, an article out of one of the medical journals that talked about, and I'm not telling people to do this, and of course you work with your doctor around medications, but he advocated for me to, to get on um, a Valium type of medicine on mm -hmm. a very low dose 
to just kind of take the edge off of it so I could still manage work and then cut that out once the antidepressants started kicking in. Mm -hmm. For me, it was really, um, it worked well. And I, I, when I went to a second appointment to advocate for that, my doctor wasn't around. So I had to go to a different family doctor and I just said, hey, here's an article my brother has showed me. I understand antidepressants can take a long time to start working. I need to, to get through this four to six weeks, you know, and uh, she, the, the family doctor wasn't hesitant at all. She was like, yeah, let's go for it. That's cool. And, and, you know, it's a a medicine that is addictive and that was a concern of mine too. And uh, so she had me on a low dose and I was making sure that I was following the directions, you know, and, and not over medicating myself with them. And I was able to get off of those and stay on the antidepressants. So, yeah, I, I mean, I really appreciate my family, my brother, my sister, my wife uh, really, really helped me through my depression. Yeah. Um, and uh, so after I'll go on a little bit more with my story. Yeah, Hopefully yeah, you can please. edit this out if yeah, it's too no. long. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> you know, at, so I, I made it through and I would say I got better probably in two or three months. My wife might say it was a little longer. But, and so then I finished up my first year, finished up my second year. I had a different um, assistant superintendent that I, was leading me then. Yeah. And, uh, and after two years, I just, I chose to, to take a demotion, um, a voluntary yeah. demotion. Yeah. I, you know, wasn't seeing my kids. It was very stressful. Um, and uh, so after two years, I asked for a voluntary demotion. I went back down to the assistant principal level and uh, my first year back as an assistant principal in a different school again was uh, was fine. It wasn't a great year. Um, the principal was having some issues of her own, so it was a little bit challenging for me to jump into that. And I was an ex-principal and my mentor became her boss. So there, it was really, oh yeah, it, it wasn't the best for her, I think, either. And I think she didn't trust me very much because of certain situations like that. And, uh, but after that first year, my second year back as an assistant principal started and I had a new boss because she left the district and the new boss was fantastic. Uh, got along great with him. I was feeling good. I had a great observation, uh, or a great evaluation from him right off the bat, you know, so I knew him in August and September, we had been working together. And then in October, like everything was going well. My kids were older. I had less stress in my work. And all of a sudden I could tell that something was going on with my body. And I started to get really worried. And I remember saying to uh, my best friend and to my brother, like my body feels different Mm. and this isn't going to be good. Yeah. And I think I even jumped right back into a therapist and stuff. Yeah. Um, did you then, did you know it was kind of like a related and, and did it feel something similar to what you had been through before? Were you worried about like heart attack or, you know, any other uh, physical things or? No, for me, I felt like it was definitely depression. Okay. And, but I, I couldn't put a finger on why, right? Yeah. Like yeah. everything was going so well. And, but I really felt like it was depression and it hit really hard and this depression i always say makes my first depression feel like a walk in the park um it was it was awful uh were were you still on the same medication uh no i had gotten off medication yeah i had gotten off a medication but so 
this one started to get really bad. So it started in October. My brother says about the, like three years after my first depression to the day, almost he looked back at an email when I checked in with him. And, uh, so, you know, I knew things were getting really bad. Like I, I was really struggling socializing Yeah, and I'm a pretty, I'm a fairly outgoing person who can engage in conversations with just about anybody. And, uh, the the thing I really remember was it was Thanksgiving, November, and we went to some friends of my wife, just a young couple, and we went with our four kids. And I sat at the kitchen island watching everything around me and watching everybody engage, and I couldn't even communicate with wow, anybody. Yeah, yeah. And we got home, and that night my wife and I were talking and just said, you know, if this is what it looks like with friends, what is work like? Mm. And uh, I called my boss and he was an amazing guy, still a a mentor and good friend of mine today. And I said, you know, I need to meet with you at a coffee shop before work. So we did. I said, hey, I am going through depression. And he said, hey, take the time off you need. And, uh, And I left that coffee shop. And the first thing he did was call my wife to say, hey, Al told me about his depression. Just know he's on his way home. Um, because he was concerned and that was awesome. So I took two weeks off. Uh, At this point, I was on a medication and I was trying, I thought, okay, I'll take some time off. I'll adjust my meds. I'll see my therapist. Uh, I ended up taking two weeks off and it was, I call them unstructured weeks where I had no plans. And it was really, in hindsight, it was awful. I mean, I started like creating a small list, like tomorrow I will do one load of laundry or I will clean one Mm. bathroom. And I couldn't, I couldn't get off my couch. I didn't want to leave the house, even though I knew that was important because I didn't want to see anybody in the community who would say, you know, why aren't you at work? So um, it was awful yet. uh, And so I decided, you know, after two weeks, okay, I'm going to try to go back to work before winter break. That'll give me like a week to try it out. Uh, It was awful. I was having what they call um, just uh, generalized thoughts of suicide, like nothing specific, but like, I'd rather not be here types of thoughts and stuff. And I went to my psychiatric PA who I was seeing and told him, hey, I'm starting to have some depression, some suicidal thoughts to, you know, could this be the medicine or could this be the depression? And he said, yeah, it could be either. And he upped my dose, which I found out later probably was not a wise choice. Um, My suicidal thoughts then became really pervasive um, and I couldn't get them out of my head. Uh, I was, I mean, some of the other symptoms too, like I was having uncontrollable crying bouts at night. I'd hold it together at work. I'd hold it together at home with the kids. And then I would just have uncontrollable crying bouts. I wasn't sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. I think there were common. Yeah. I think there were a couple weeks where I had slept like 10 hours for the week. Um, I was losing dramatic weight. I think I lost about 50 pounds because I couldn't eat. I had a giant knot in my stomach. Um, and literally couldn't put food down. Um, but when I had these suicidal thoughts and, and, you know, and I found myself doing some really crazy things like sitting in my room in the dark 
And I looked up a website and found a website to how to kill yourself and how many and a rating scale of how many seconds it would take to die in a zero to 10 for how painful it would be. And I slammed my laptop shut and was like, holy crap, Scaring Like I can't yourself? believe I'm doing this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I did that was really freaky um, was looked in a mirror and luckily I didn't have one on me, but I was trying to figure out the best trajectory for a gun uh, at my head. Yeah. Um, and I was in shock that I was yeah. at a point where I was doing this right. So then I came up with this plan and I couldn't get the plan out of my head. And one evening I woke up in the middle of the night and sat up in bed having dreamt of the plan. And then I, I told my wife and sister that morning, I was like, I need a, an emergency psychiatric appointment. Please yeah. come with me to advocate for me. Yeah, yeah. And I was so glad I asked them because the psychiatric PA was still wishy-washy. He was like, well, you could take time off, but yeah. that could be stressful. And, and what are you going to do? And what about going back to work? And my sister was like, no, he's taking yeah, time so, off. <laughs> sounds like they didn't and, read the room uh, very well. Oh my goodness. And then, uh, so I was so thankful they were there. I ended up uh, checking myself into a partial hospitalization program for three weeks, which was an awesome kickstart to to my recovery. I mean, it wasn't at all enough to fully recover from right, a depression right. like that, but it was a great kickstart. And the other thing I would say about family advocating, I, I brought my wife with me to check me into the partial hospitalization program. And I was so thankful because, you know, I wasn't thinking straight. And yeah. the depression had right. impacted my cognition, my memory, my focus, everything. And they would ask questions. And I'm like, I don't know when I started that medicine. I don't know what, you know. And my wife was there to to really help me along. Um, so that uh, that really is the story yeah. in in kind of a nutshell version, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and so so I have a couple of quick questions. And, and you know, I, I don't like to get money involved in these things sometimes or the insurance companies, but I'm, yeah. cu I'm just curious to know like how, how you navigated all that stuff or how your family ended up navigating it does you know, was your, was your mental health covered? Your, your, sorry, your, um, your, your therapist visits covered at the time. Yeah. And then, and then was this, was this three, three week treatment plan covered through, you know, insurance or was that an out of pocket thing? So that's a great question. And because unfortunately money does prevent some people from right, getting the right. treatment they need and deserve. Right. So, uh, you know, I have a family, like I mentioned, four kids and my wife. And uh, as an educator, I get some pretty decent uh, health coverage. It's still fairly expensive. But so to see a therapist, you know, I pay a copay okay. until we reached our out of pocket. Yeah. Um, so I had an out of pocket maximum. And so we knew that. And I checked myself in in January, the beginning of January. And it was like, we had to pay out of pocket until we hit the deductible and then the rest was covered because yeah, three weeks in a partial hospitalization program is not cheap, yeah, but we had reached our out of pocket maximum probably in my first week and we knew and were willing to pay for that out of pocket maximum. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest of the year we had no more co-pays or anything. Yeah. Um, so it worked out really well for us. And as far as, you know, I, I looked into and had to take FMLA to make sure that I would have a position when I came back to work. Yeah. Um, and the, the partial hospitalization program was awesome at helping work through that 
Um, they helped me complete some of the forms, fax them to the right people and everything like that. Yeah. So that was fairly smooth in my case. Okay. And, and yeah. the, other, the other question I have is how, how did you deal with your children? Uh, how did you talk to them about, about this situation? Yeah. So that's a great question. So in the beginning, um, I, I didn't tell them anything and they didn't ask questions. They were young enough. You know, my oldest was, must have been like eight at yeah. that time and then five and three and three. Um, so they were young they enough were, yeah. that, the, that it didn't Eight's really on the phase. verge of starting to... Yeah, starting to have some questions and yeah, wonderings, yeah. right? Because I was all of a sudden, I was, my partial hospitalization program was enough that I was gone during the day, like nine to 3.30 or so. So my day didn't look too different to them, but there, I was wondering, you know, hey, I'm not wearing a tie anymore. I wonder if they'll ask about that. <laughs> or, hey, dad's dropping me off at school now because it was a little later so yeah. I could drop them off at school. Yeah. And, you know, there weren't any questions. When my kids got older, um, I shared with my oldest one uh, and my whole story, essentially, I think yeah. everything except for the pieces around suicide. Yeah, yeah. Um, although now I am willing to and would share that with her. Yeah. Um, and the 14-year-old knows. And then the twins are still, they're 10 now. And I haven't okay. really, they know that I do um, a podcast. They know it's around depression. I don't know if they really know the ins and outs of, of it yet. But yeah. You know, it's something that we really try to talk openly about as a family, yeah. our feelings and mental health. Um, my uh, second oldest we had in therapy from a pretty young age because she just was super emotional um, with sad feelings and excited feelings. And she mm -hmm. was blowing up at home a lot. But it ends up that, um, well, and I shouldn't say but, it, it just ends up that she loved her therapist and she still sees her to this day. Yeah. You know, many years later, um, not nearly as often, but she loved therapy. She loves the person. So, you yeah. know, we used to be like, oh, it's an Angie day. And she would, she loves yeah. Angie. And, uh, and so it's allowed us, you know, to, to talk about therapy in a really healthy way yeah. and to be able to talk about times when we're struggling and how it's not easy and yeah. how there is help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's so important. My, my son was in this like group when he was a, maybe second grader or something like that. And it was, they, they heard him doing some negative self-talk. And so they had this like therapy group and they said, if, if, if that doesn't you know work for him, we can get him one-on-one, -on -one. but kids seem to like this. They, they turned some of it into games. And so, and I, and what they were doing was really giving them tools like, you know, to, to understand what the feeling was that they were experiencing. So, you know, then he would start saying to me like, well, dad, it really frustrates me when you say, <laughs> it was like, right, thank you right. for letting me know. Cause I, but that's, that's the thing is being able to communicate that to another Absolutely. person, right? We all struggle with this. Maybe I would say in the Midwest, even more. Yeah. I, I, think I, mean, you're I could right. be wrong, but I, but I, I yeah. just, cause I've, I've lived on, on, on the East coast. I feel like the, the, those, those emotions, people are a little more connected to, and, right. they, and they're, you know, they're willing to have the emotion and apologize for it sometimes too. Whereas here, like a little more stuff down, even the way that I'm working with people for sure. lately through the pandemic, I think people are doing kind of amazing work. I would do a lot of coordinating with mental health. I do um, you know, kind of osteopathic work and, and, um, you know, craniosacral therapy, which is really kind of like a, 
a, a mix of, of, you know, really sort of being with that person. It's not energy work, but it's very low force. It's like almost kind of like if, if, what osteopathic work is almost like really low force chiropractic. So what you're doing is you're helping the whole system kind of relax. You know, we, we work on the breathing systems and we kind of do some coaching right. through it. And, and we're also, we we're trained to be able to deal with things as they come up. If there's a, a conversation that, you know, they start to have with you or they have some memory or they have a strong image. We, we know how to work with that. It's not, we're not going to do what a therapist does, but at least, you know, sometimes what we're looking for is what change might happen in the body if they're able to express that, whatever is going on. Right. Sometimes the expression is just telling you the story. You yeah. Know, sometimes the, there's an emotion that goes with it, but that's, so I, I end up doing a lot of that work. So, you that's know, fantastic. That that's 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 a piece that that I've you know, I've gotten more interested in. I think as 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 time has gone on, as as I've you know talked to you about before, like there's there's a piece of of the physiological that's going on that I always feel is is connected back to an early experience in your life or an emotion or something like that. So is, was that right. anything for for you um, that that you were able to trace back, you know, to like some you know some of some of the the, the emotional parts of things that you were that you were struggling with that you might have found in therapy did you find anything from earlier in life or was it really kind of centered around maybe what was happening just at that moment in your life yeah you know my therapy has pretty much been about what has been happening at that time what can I do to get better what can I do to maintain men better mental health yeah. um, and never really dug into the past and things yeah. um, can, can I ask the, what kind of therapy that, that you've done uh, or you been know, doing? Yeah, it's typically a mix um, of CBT okay. as well as my current therapist um, knows a lot about DBT and will sometimes bring in DBT strategies. Yeah. Um, and I think he describes his practice as kind of a mix. Okay. Can, 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 um, you, can, you, can you tell us what the acronyms mean for anybody who doesn't know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. CBT is Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Yeah. And a lot of that is working with your thought processes, yeah. right? Because it's you, you, somebody, you see an action or something happens, and then we create our own thought about that. Yeah. And then oftentimes we start to act and behave based on that thought. Mm -hmm. And especially when dealing with depression, even just minor depression, it's easy to get into these negative thought patterns, yeah, yeah. which can spiral down, right? Yeah. Um, and I mean, I was taking everything personally that anybody said when I was going through depression. I remember somebody complaining about the schedule to me and I walked away thinking like, oh my God, they hate me. I'm an awful administrator. <laughs> right, right. But really the facts were we had a team who made the schedule and the schedules at elementary levels are crazy these days. <laughs> right. Like it wasn't at all a critique on me, but yeah. I could turn it into that. Yeah. And then, you know, and, or, and it's a, a new job, right? So, you, so you're always going to have like imposter syndrome to some extent that yeah, you're struggling with. Absolutely. Uh, another simple example of, of CBT is, you know, walking down the hallway, I say hi to somebody and they don't say hello back. And all of a sudden I create my own story. Like yeah. they hate me. They're not, they're ignoring me when really maybe they didn't hear me. Yeah. Maybe they just got some terrible news that's on their mind, right? There's mm -hmm. all these possibilities. Oh yeah. So really CBT is catching those negative thoughts, stopping those thoughts 
asking for facts, right? Like I, I mentioned about the scheduling piece yeah. and then changing that thought into something more positive or, yeah. or workable. Um, and then DBT is dialectical behavioral therapy. And I don't know a ton about it, but um, it involves, uh, it's part of it is the thought processes and stuff, but they, mm -hmm. it's a lot more skill-based and it involves learning, like you met, talked about breathing strategies, some meditative strategies yeah. and mindfulness um, and quite a few other strategies like that, that I, I haven't really um, worked in great detail with DBT, yeah. but I hear some fantastic things. Um, most DBT programs I've heard about are almost like a year long and mm -hmm. they're two evenings, the programs I've heard about people attending, two evenings a week, one is a group therapy um, session and then one night a week is one-to-one. -one. Mm. And a lot of times it's applying the strategies you're learning to your own situation and stuff. And I've heard just amazing things. Uh, several people I know have said, everybody should go through a DBT, DBT program, like everybody. It's just yeah. awesome. So, so going back after that, after that three weeks that you, that you went through that kind of, you know, kind of jumpstarted you, what was the, what was your recovery process like from, from there in terms of like integrating back into work and, you know, you know, trying to get your social skills back on track yeah. and parenting and your, you know, marriage and all that stuff. I'm sure you kind of had to work back each of these things. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I decided to schedule a meeting with my boss and, uh, so work-wise I met with him and just said, Hey, I'm coming back. I need you to know that I'm not a hundred percent, but also know that I wouldn't be coming back if I didn't think I could handle it. Okay. Um, yeah. and he was great. Like, let me know what you need me to take off your plate and I'm here to support you. And that was awesome. Uh, so work was okay. It certainly did take um, a fair amount of time for me to be comfortable there. Uh, the At the time, I didn't have an outside, or my outside therapist had just uh, was leaving his role. So the partial hospitalization program helped me um, connect with a psychiatrist and also a therapist. Um, so I continued therapy. I was then working with a psychiatrist. Um, and uh, actually, uh, I don't know if you want to get into this or not, but I have a kind of an interesting meds story. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to hear about that actually. Um, so, so at the partial hospitalization program, you start with a new psychiatrist, okay. even if you had one. Okay. And they they do a quick assessment of your medicines and what you're doing and and what's working, what's not, and if you need to make some changes. He changed my antidepressant, but more importantly, he was really concerned about my lack of sleep. Mm. And I think a lot of times sleep is the first thing they want to get control of because, totally agree. you know, you don't understand how much of your issues are the lack of sleep that yeah. can mess you up so oh, yeah. terribly or the depression, right? So it was really interesting. I was already on trazodone. A, uh, actually, it's an antidepressant that's used very commonly off-label for sleep medicine. And again, I want to reiterate, I'm not promoting, I shouldn't have even mentioned the med name, but, yeah, but not promoting uh, the medicine. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um, so I was on trazodone and this, th and the therapist asked me about my sleep and I said, you know, when, when I fall asleep, finally, I sleep pretty well, but I'm, it's uh, tough to get to sleep. So I had never heard about a doctor doing this, but he put me on an anti, on a uh, prescription antihistamine. Mm. 
to knock me out, to get me tired before bed, and to continue with the trazodone to put me, to keep me to asleep, keep asleep once yeah. I was asleep. Yeah, okay. So, um, and, you know, I was looking at the trazodone bottle and I took the maximum of whatever they could, whatever the bottle said, of course, because I wanted to get sleep. I yeah. knew I needed sleep, right? So all the way through this three-week partial hospitalization program, my kids were still little. I still had two kids in cribs and they would cry, you know, and whatnot. And my wife was really good about like, I'm not going to wake Al. He's going to sleep mm -hmm. because he's, you know, trying to recover and he needs it. And I'm sure she was struggling dealing with oh, this yeah. depressed guy for a right. long time too, right? So it was really interesting though because, so I never got up in the middle of the night. Well, when I left the partial hospitalization program, um, all of a sudden, uh, the first, my first night out of there, I think it was, um, one of my kids, my second oldest kid went downstairs to the main floor and we had an alarm system and the motion detector was on. So the alarm system would beep really high beeps before the sirens would go. And I heard this beep, 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 beep. And, and so I knew like the alarm all of a sudden was going off. So I shot out of bed, I ran downstairs, I went to the alarm panel and, and was able to cancel it. But the alarm sound had just kind of started. So I wanted to call the alarm system and this was like 11 at night. So I started to dial the alarm system and in my head, I was trying to think, what's my password? They're gonna ask for the password. I couldn't think of it. And the phone just kept ringing and all of a sudden I woke up and I had passed out and fell. And I woke up like with my face right at uh, the bottom of a coat rack and I got myself up and I went about six feet going towards the upstairs, towards my bedroom. And I fainted again a second time. And then I got myself up, I got to the stairs and I was banging across the walls of the stairs. And my wife's, my bedroom door where my wife was sleeping was cracked open. I fainted a third time and fell through this door that was cracked open, slamming the door open. My wife was there and the, the, young, the second oldest kid who had started the alarm. And they were both in there looking at me. And I like crawled my way up to the bed and laid on my back. And my wife was like, you're white. And uh, crazily enough, I slept that night and I was like, I just need sleep. And I went to work the next day. <laughs> And I was no longer in the partial hospitalization program, but I called that doctor and said, hey, I just fainted three times. In fact, the first fainting, I messed up my shoulder and still messed up to today. I'm lucky uh, it wasn't a head injury, really. Right, right. Um, but so I called him and he's like, no way, this is not the medicine because you were on the medicine for three weeks and nothing happened. So it can't be the meds. But again, I had never been up in the middle of the night. Right, and he right. just said, so if it happens again, call 911 and get off the medicines. And he was no longer my psychiatrist because he was only it for that there when I was in the hospitalization yeah, yeah. program. So two nights later, the babies are crying in the cribs. And sure enough, my wife like elbows me like, okay, hey, you're done with your program. You're better. <laughs> you go deal with the crying baby. And I was standing between the two cribs and my son was crying. I still remember this. And 
he was like banging around in the crib and screaming and screaming for his mom. And I looked at him and I remember just saying like, if you don't calm down or I'm just going to leave. And I turned to walk away and I just fainted and landed flat on my face. And my wife heard the clunk and she said she came over and was trying to wake me for a bit of time. And then I woke up, scooted myself to the wall and was leaning against the wall, sitting down with my legs out. And we were both like, do we call 911? Which was kind of scary for us both, but we were told to do that. Instead, uh, my wife called her sister, who also is a family doctor. My wife called my brother, who's a family doctor in England. And both were like, yeah, you should probably call 911. So we do, and all this, you know, the medics show up, and uh, I go into the hot, into the ambulance, and they're putting the heart monitors on me and everything, and uh, I get to the hospital, and they're the, in the ER, and they're running a bunch of tests and things, and the doctor, the doctor came back, and I didn't even understand his sarcasm until I left the ER. <laughs> but he said, yeah, no problem. He said, you know, trazodone, this is the most common side effect we see of trazodone, is people fainting. And he said, you don't have to do a thing at all about your medicines. All you have to do is worry about fainting and knocking yourself on the head and dying. You know, essentially, like, get off that medicine. But again, I didn't understand didn't, didn't sarcasm, sarcasm as I was walking out going, I, I think he's telling me I should get off these meds. Yeah, but also maybe, uh, maybe not exactly the right time for the sarcasm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right on. So uh, I called that therapist uh, from the partial hospitalization program again. And, and he said, you know, just, you know, he assured me um, like the antihistamine, I, I believe I didn't even have to wean off. Uh, yeah. I could just stop in the trazodone. He told me I should wean, so I worked yeah. with another psychiatrist on weaning off of that as quickly as I could. I mean, yeah. by guidelines, you know, I yeah. think anytime you wean off meds, it's really important to work with a doctor on it because certain meds, you really have to wean slowly. And and so did did you did you find other ways like sleep management things for yourself then over time? I, I mean, because I I've I've had to go through with back pain stuff. You know, I had to go through some of these you know meds and stuff too. And yeah, luckily none of them suited me very well. So I just kept kind of working on different ways of of you know dealing with it. And I and I you know things that things that became much healthier in time. But at, right. at the beginning when you're just when you're just struggling with pain, like you'll kind of do anything. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. But similar to, you know, your, your situation, sleep, when you're, when you're in a, such a, you know, sleep deprived state, you just have to get that, that part fixed first. But when, yeah. when you're, you know, passing out, obviously you, you, you got to make a shift. So, so yeah. what, did, what did you end yes. up figuring out? Well, so for me, both of those, it worked out really well because they had put me on a different antidepressant that had been working really well. It's an antidepressant that works for anxiety and depression. And I was able to wean off of those. And just as he had thought, the antidepressant, uh, you know, was doing its job of allowing me to sleep, whether that was just by eliminating the anxiety I was dealing with, with the racing mind at night or what it was doing. But I, I was so thankful that I didn't need any kind of sleep meds after that experience. And and where are you at today? Like in terms of medication or in terms of, you know, tools for managing, uh, yeah, so uh, I am seeing um, a therapist still, which I I uh, had stopped for a long time, and then my dad passed away just before COVID, yeah. and 
And uh, so I decided, well, I'm not depressed with my dad's dying, but I know I'm susceptible to depression. I may as well start seeing a a therapist. So I'm still seeing a therapist to this day. Uh, Now I'm only, you know, at first it was weekly and then twice a month. And now I'm just seeing him monthly, Um, but I'm still seeing a therapist. I started, uh, you know, you had mentioned Face It Foundation, which is phenomenal. I still go to the men's support group for depression and anxiety every other week, which is awesome. Um, I am still on one medicine that I take. um, And my therapist has talked about weaning me off. And I'm kind of like, you know, if it's if it's one of the things that's helping me, because I, I, you know, I am scared as hell to go back to I mean, I, I don't live in fear of it, so I don't yeah. want to say it like that, but I never want to be where I was. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it may sound a little cliche, but I would never wish my worst enemy to be in a place where I was. Right, right. So that's enough uh, fear for me to think like, if this antidepressant is helping me and it's one of my tools, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, and maybe there will be a time I, I want to wean off um, and and I'll figure that out, you yeah. know, uh, a lot of times it's difficult with different stressful times coming up at jo- at the job and stuff that I yeah. decide out this it's tough to figure out a really good time for it. And then you know I'm still I, I try to exercise. Usually I I am like many men I think where it comes in waves. Like I'll be really good for a few yeah. months of exercise. You're a parent of four uh, as well, so yeah, you know, right. Cut you but, a little slack. But uh, <laughs> and most recently my brother. Uh, so I did go to a family doctor, which men often neglect, and mm-hmm. I had for a long time as well. And I called my brother, the family doctor, and I was like, oh, my God, like everything is red flag, like blood pressure, all my my um, cholesterol and everything, which has always been a little high for me yeah. for a long time. But And my brother just said, you know, if you were to lose, because I'm a heavy dude, if I was to lose, if you were to lose 10, 15, maybe 20 pounds, I bet all those numbers would come down. And he talked to me about a whole food plant-based diet. And I've been on that since the beginning of March. So I'm also, you know, eating way healthier, trying to exercise quite a bit. Uh, We have an elliptical. um, And then the the med, the therapist, the uh, men's support group. So I'm doing quite a bit. Yeah. Um, in addition, you know, the podcast, you know, it's finding a hobby that you love. Right, exactly. And, uh, yeah. you know, I love the podcast. I love the mental health advocacy work I do. And that kind of feeds me. Um, yeah. So tell me about so, this. I, I know you just got appointed by the governor of Minnesota uh, to a council here, correct? Yeah. Yep. So um, it's been about a year now, I think, that I've been on the state advisory council for mental health, mental health. Um, which has been a great experience. How did that and, happen? Uh, it's an application process, okay. and so um, so they have uh, they have different positions that come up, like community members, therapists. Yeah. They try to have a wide variety of people, and uh, I saw an opening and thought I would go for it. Um, and so that's been an amazing experience. And from there, I learned about the state mental health task force. I'm sorry, the state suicide uh, aware, suicide prevention task force. Okay. And uh, so I'm on the suicide uh, suicide task force as well for the state. And that's been a great experience as well. So yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, stay in the mental health field as much as possible while I'm working my full-time job. And, yeah. and actually, you know, there are a lot of overlaps and 
You know, one of the things I've been advocating for even well before the pandemic was better systems of mental health support for educators Um, because we don't have enough for our kids. We have an overwhelming amount of needs for our kids, but at least everybody's talking about it and trying to problem solve about it and get more school-based therapy, for example. But um, nobody talks about the mental health of educators. I think with the pandemic, they are starting to. Yeah. But it is something that I have talked about for a long, long time. And, uh, and, and it's not getting any better. No, I, I mean, I, the I, mental I, health of our educators yeah. is, is in a dire situation right now, I believe. And, you know, you can see it by the numbers of educators who are leaving. We've had more educators leave in the U.S., I think, more educators leave the public school system mid-year than any other year. Um, And we're seeing the same here in Minnesota. Um, Educators are leaving. We can't fill positions because nobody's applying for them. Um, We've had three paraprofessional openings for special ed the entire year with zero candidates. Um, and, uh, And then we have had, you know, staff members um, out a lot for their own health or their mental health and whatnot. And we typically are short, you know, four to six teachers without subs. Yeah. So then we're piecing together a hodgepodge of teachers who are losing their prep time, the only time they have to plan and do their work. And they're losing that and working in other classrooms. And, you know, the stress just builds and builds and builds. Yeah. Um, so it's been, it's been tough and I think we can do better for our educators. And I really think we have to. Yeah. I'm so glad you're doing that work. And, you know, if you look back at the history, I mean, I had teachers who were pretty cruel when I was, when I was younger, I went to a Catholic grade school too. So that probably didn't help. But but I also think that like they, we, we didn't have, we didn't have these tools. We didn't, we didn't have the, you know, the understanding of, you know, CBT and, all these things, you know, back then to, to know even how we were processing, you know, the, the, the struggles, the challenges of our, of our workplace. And so I, you know, I think it's, it's slowly, you know, probably evolved. People have, have learned to take care of themselves a little bit better, but then you throw something like a pandemic and, and health professionals are, are the other, you know, group yeah. right now that I think is really, really struggling mental health wise. In yeah. my practice, I mean, I treat a lot of therapists and I treat a lot of a lot of educators yeah. and I treat a lot of health professionals. So right, that's, right, that's sure. been the bulk of, of, you know, the, the, the big shift that's happened just through the pandemic for, for my practice. Yeah. So absolutely. it's pretty, it's pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, people don't really think about it, but the educators are dealing with the kids and their behaviors, right? Tons yeah. of our urban kids are, are going in and out of complex trauma on a daily basis. And we're hearing these stories from the kids. We're seeing how their behaviors manifest it's a lot on our educators and our educators have zero time in the day to process. So, I mean, they may even be dealing with a suicidal kid and then it's like, okay, we've got them to the social worker now. Good luck with the rest of your day. (laughs) You know, keep going with that math lesson. Um, And there's, there's no time to process. They are stuck in the building all day long. You can't go out really. Um, So yeah, it's just, it has been a lot, a lot on our educators and, I think we're going to have to to start acknowledging it, and I think there has been some acknowledgement of it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we're just we're losing too many educators um, to the job, and um, you know, we've seen some suicides as well. Yeah. And uh, it's just we can't can't keep going this way. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story because I, I think, you know, people need to know that like what they're going through sometimes, it, and it, it may not be to the extreme that you were, you know, sometimes I, I feel, I feel lucky with my, with my situation that I had physiological symptoms that sort of made me change. You know I mean? It sounds like right. for, for, it was similar for you. I mean, obviously you had, you had more of the, the mental and, you know, stuff going on as well. And, and, you know, the, the sleep issues, but those, those kinds of things can be real catalysts. I mean, it's well, you know, what I was saying earlier, I, I feel like I see people also doing really good work and it's usually because they've hit, maybe they haven't hit a complete bottom, but they've hit, they've hit a wall of some sort where they're like, I have to face this thing and deal with it right now. And right, so, right. and, 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 you know, when that happens that I think people had some time, you know, especially like late 2020 or early 2021, I feel like since then I I'm starting to see some things pop up that are like, this person's not doing as well, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and yeah. so, and, and so, you know, but luckily that's the, that we've had, we've developed a rapport and a conversation around some of these things. So we can really, you know, get back into there if they need to see their therapist again or do something yeah. else. But, but building that relationship with you is so important, right? Yeah. So that they can trust you yeah. and, and they're able to share that with you maybe before reaching out to a therapist or somebody. Yeah. And it's that, part of the reason awesome. why, as you were saying, like, don't, don't give up on, you know, and on that, on that therapist from, you know, just because you didn't have a, a great therapist, you know, situation to start out with, but the same could be said of any of the people in your team. I mean, I see an acupuncturist yes. and I see, you know, a physical yeah. therapist and I see all these different people. They, they start to start to know you in a certain way. And sometimes they might challenge you and say, Hey man, you, you, you just seem a little like a little off what's going on. Right. You know? And, and, it, and I, I mean, I, I trust that with, with those people if I've, if I've worked with them for a long time. So that also makes me feel like supported, you yes. know, if, if something like that's going on. So, for so sure. it's important just, you know, to, I, I try to, you know, promote this a lot to just, you know, build a team around yourself. And that team could also be, you know, close friends and family members as you were lucky enough to have in this situation. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. The, the team is, is huge and important. Right. And, you know, the, the data shows that most people live for 10 years with depression before Oof. they reach out for help, which yeah. is outrageous. Yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that's starting to change yeah. the more we see people talking more about it. Yeah. Well, for, for anyone who wants to, you know, hear some of these some of these people that you're talking to, some, you know, some of the, especially now, some of the you know, some of the science behind all of this, as well as people sharing their stories. I think sometimes you, you know, even for me, I feel like I, I pick up on something that, that I relate to usually and, and try to get as much, you know, learn as much I, as I can about that situation if, if I relate to a story in health, whatever it is. And I feel right. like, you know, when we first met and talked, I, and pre-pandemic, I mean, it's like, seems yeah. like forever ago now, but, right, but right. I, but I felt like, yeah, I, I see, I, I see how, you know, how, why we, why we would have an easy conversation because you, there's, there's some kind of work that you have to do through this process. And, and, and then, and then I, I think once you, once you get through something like that, there is this sense of like, I'd, I'd like to help, you know, somebody else in the way that I, that I feel like I was helped, or sometimes you're still looking for, for answers and, and that, you know, it's, it, I always think there's, there are these selfish motivations that actually do end up helping other people too. So yeah. don't feel bad if you just feel like you really need to focus on yourself right now. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Al. I really appreciate it. And for anyone who wants to uh, check out your show, it's Depression Files. Um, you also have a website now, um, is it depressionfiles.com? Yep. The depressionfiles.com and there they can, uh, they can find the blog, they can find the podcast, 
Uh, I also kind of wrote out my entire story. That was my first blog post. Um, so that's there as well. Yeah. And, and some of your stuff is up on Huffington Post and some other psych yeah, uh, yeah um, the mighty articles and stuff too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and I'm going to put links for all this stuff up on, you know, if you're, if anyone who's listening wants to just, you know, scroll down to the show notes, there'll be links to a lot of Al's stuff there too. Awesome. And, you know, I was really, I, sorry to interrupt you, Jeremy. Yeah. I was uh, lucky enough. I uh, just less than a week ago, um, I was highlighted in the Min post. They did an article about myself and the podcast too. So I, I saw that. that article too. Yeah. yeah that's cool, man. Yeah, that was, uh, I was really excited about that. Well, thank, thanks a lot for, for sharing with us today, Al. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. If you enjoy podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Healthcare for Humans, hosted by Dr. Sundar, expands our understanding of the history and culture of different communities and how to provide culturally responsive care. There's an episode you should check out where guest Dr. Duran details the systemic barriers faced by individuals with DACA status and highlights the importance of addressing these barriers. Check out Healthcare for Humans on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.